James Beard died in 1985. Despite his importance in legitimizing American cuisine, many people today do not know who he is, even if they have heard of the awards given in his name. John Birdsall's biography will introduce many readers to the real James Beard. It's on the tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with John Birdsall. He's a writer. He's written a cookbook. He is a two-time James Beard Award winner. And we're here to talk today about his new book, The Man Who Ate Too Much, the life of James Beard. So welcome, John. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's just jump right in. I really want to know what made you decide to write this book? Well, you know, for a long time before I started writing, I was a chef um, and I cooked in restaurants in the San Francisco Bay Area. And for about five years in the 1990s, I cooked at this sort of American themed restaurant called the Ironwood Cafe. And one of our sources for recipes was James Beard and specifically his 1972 book, James Beard's American Cookery. So that was stuck in my head. I loved especially his corn spoon bread. And there were a couple of salmon dishes that I would cook that I loved. But really, the impetus was a 2013 essay I wrote for Lucky Peach magazine. The essay was called America, Your Food is So Gay. And I was really struck by the influence of three men who wrote about food for American audiences, uh, James Beard, Craig Claiborne, and Richard Olney. And they were really influential in kind of setting up, kind of establishing this tone of 20th century American food, and all were closeted men. And so I wanted to know, in Beard's case specifically, how someone so famous in his time, really synonymous with food and drink and living the good life in America for, you know, a good 30, 40 years, how he could also have this sort of shadow, secret gay life that, you know, certainly was an open secret for anyone in the small New York food world who knew him, but that he had to keep from the public. Do you think that during that period, the public generally simply looked the other way and didn't want to know? Or was it something that was really truly a secret? I think it was something, well, I, I think it was both. I think it depended on which part of, uh, of his audience we are talking about. And part of the book's research for me was, you know, understanding the very complicated dynamics of being in the closet in America in the 20th century, specifically after World War II and until, you know, the 1970s. 
And it's more complicated. It was a lot more complicated than I thought. I mean, I'm a gay man. I you know, sort of grew up um, in the 1980s, 1990s were coming out. But my understanding was really insufficient to understand how complicated being in the closet was. And there were, it was a conspiracy on many levels. So it was a conspiracy, say, with James Beard's good friends. They would know not to mention it, not to hint about it in public. It was a conspiracy of his sort of editors and collaborators because, you know, if the knowledge came out, it would ruin his career. Um, and in the public, you know, a lot of people just would make sort of private assumptions about people that, you know, they were probably gay if they even used that word or if they, you know, felt like that there was something a little um, different or unusual about somebody. But it tended to be a private speculation. It was such a subject that was shrouded in shame, secrecy, that it, it, it this, as I say, conspiracy sort of conspiracy of silence operated on many levels. But mostly I would imagine that his friends and and co-workers and the people in the publishing industry and whatever actually didn't have to be told not to tell anybody. I mean, it right. was like part of this cultural thing where you didn't speak of it. Yes, I mean, it, it was, you know, it was inappropriate I and mean, we're, I mean, of course, nowadays, we're much more comfortable talking about sexuality in general. You know, it's just part of our identity, you know, for most of us, you know, who we're partnered with, um, you know, our dating lives, <laughs> all of that. And that was so much, you know, so far off the table for the majority of Americans in the late 20th century who would have been the audience for James Beard's books. So it's just kind of ordinary middle Americans, you know, many of them women, although he did appeal to, to, to a male audience as well. But yeah, it was just, it was just not part of, you know, polite discussion. So after you wrote the Lucky Peach article, you decided to bring it into a book form. So that must have meant a much deeper dive into James Beard's life. It was, and I knew, I knew some things about his life from books. I mean, you know, there were two existing biographies of James Beard, one written in 1990, one in 1994, which are very, very good. Also from David Camp's great book, The United States of Arugula, sort of looking at the history of the rise of gourmet food culture in the United States. So I did have a basic knowledge of the, the sort of outline of James Beard's life. And I hesitated for really a couple of years. I had the idea to write a new biography, but I wondered if I could really live the next couple of years of my life embedded <laughs> in research on someone's life, even someone as fascinating to me as James Beard, someone who had such a colorful, wide-ranging life. But you know, once I began the research and to really dig down into Beard's life and to, um, you know, really bring a new lens to sort of look at even familiar plot points in his life. It just became really fascinating to me. As I was reading the book, I was very much struck with the detail that you had. And when you talk about events that 
maybe another biographer would simply say this happened or there was a meeting with so-and-so. You talk about the details of the meetings. And I wonder whether, whether this is based on things that you found that other people didn't find or is it because other people purposely didn't go into the detail because they were telling a different story? Yeah, definitely both. Robert Clark's biography of James Beard, which is the one that was published in 1994, just now called uh, The Solace of Food, which is great. I mean, Robert Clark really lays out almost month by month the sort of events of James Beard's life. Um, I had the benefit of knowing that that biography was out there, that it did that. And so I felt like that freed me up to be able to focus in on incidents and relationships in James Beard's life that I felt told a deeper story or a deep story about his sexuality and how it related to his uh, food, how it related to his persona and his even sort of myth-making about American food. So I was really focused on that one particular aspect of his, you know, throughout his life of how his private life, specifically sexuality, really informed that sense of his work. I felt like I could look at, look at incidents with a very focused microscope. So that meant putting certain situations, certain incidents in context. So for that, I did a lot of historical research that had nothing or little to do with James Beard. For instance, you know, I wanted to see the office where a meeting might have taken place, or I wanted to know what it was like to eat at a restaurant in Barcelona that James liked in 1957. So that, you know, required finding old photographs, finding contemporary accounts of what that plate felt like, what it looked like, what it smelled like. I wanted to get as much detail into like that into the book as possible. And also, I mean, it seemed appropriate in sort of a life like James Beard's that's devoted to food, that was devoted to sensation and taste to really try to tell a story partly in tastes and food and um, atmosphere, make it really atmospheric. In other cases, James kept really detailed date books, travel date books, particularly. And unfortunately, they only exist from about 1952 to through the early 1970s, although he was less faithful in recording things. Starting in the late 1960s, he discovered a little Sony tape recorder, cassette tape recorder. <laughs> mm -hmm. So things that he would have scrawled in his notebook, he would then just sort of record in his little, in his little recorder. And so do um, those tapes still exist somewhere? Some tapes exist, yeah. I was unable to be able to listen to them, but he had an office assistant, a few office assistants who would transcribe those tapes. So transcriptions of some of, some of them do exist. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, you know, looking at those date books, they're kind of the obvious, you know, sort of factual events. You know, mm -hmm. he met somebody in a restaurant in Paris and they ate this. So for me, it became a process of finding out exactly 
trying to find out exactly who he was meeting with. He had a very busy, active life. He met with a lot of people. And so it involved doing a lot of research about who, who he was meeting and who they were and the context of their lives as well. I have a passage in the introduction to my book about trying to research the life of gay and lesbian people in the 20th century who destroyed much of the evidence of their private lives. Mm -hmm. And this was not something that was unique to James Beard. The consequences of being exposed as being gay or lesbian, especially in the two decades after World War II, really, really dire. And so it was just common for people to destroy letters, to you know, destroy anything, quote unquote, incriminating. And so researching any LGBT person's life from that period involves some sort of filling in details as well. Mm -hmm. I have a quote in my introduction about historians, gay historians, and biographers, in my case, becoming archeologists. And you have to sort of sift through all of this peripheral material, you know, something that the subject may not have thought was important or, or fail to destroy um, to sort of find a few nuggets of illuminating information. So how did you go about finding all of that material? Where is it living? Part of it involved hunches, some of which paid off and a lot didn't. <laughs> um, for instance, I figured that, you know, James had a very close circle of uh, gay and lesbian friends in the 1950s in Greenwich Village where he lived. And so I figured that he would be involved in conversations at that time about gay and lesbian rights. And, you know, the biggest organization at the time gay rights organization was the Mattachine Society. Mm -hmm. um, and so the Mattachine's magazine called One has archives at USC in LA. So I wondered if he would show up, if his name would pop up in the archives of One magazine. And so just sort of following a hunch, I went there, sort of spent a day sifting through the materials. And finally, like the last folder I looked at, <laughs> I was really sort of in despair. And sure enough, the last folder I looked at had a subscription list and a sort of closeted gay friend of James's in 1958, you wanted to send James a gift subscription to the magazine. And sure enough, there's a letter, you know, please, <laughs> you know, here's my enclosed $10. Please open a subscription for James Beard. So it really was detective work in a lot of cases following hunches, as I say. The bulk of the archives are at NYU, New York University, the Fales Library, the mm -hmm. James Beard Archive, which is pretty large. That's been pretty well sifted through. And those were James's kind of official papers, things that his you know, secretary and helpers sort of kept and filed. So it's interesting. Things uh, like contracts and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and uh, tons, tons, tons of fan mail. Um, ah. <laughs> would, you know, somebody would open his fan mail and, you know, be sort of asking him, oh, you know, so-and-so wants to know where there's a great recipe for this. And his secretary would sort of write down in the margin what he answered, or in some cases, he himself would sort of write what to respond to, to mm -hmm. this. Person. So those are great. And then there's another archive at Columbia University 
James Beard's literary agent is a man named John Schaffner. He was literary agent to a number of authors, of course, but also food, food people. He worked with Julia Child for a while, Craig Claiborne, Richard Olney. And when I was doing my research, I spent a summer in New York City to be close to the archives. And I thought, you know, these are papers from his literary agent. They're going to be like royal, you know, book royalty statements. I allowed myself like two days to go through these archives. And once I got there, it was my head exploded because they were incredible. John Schaffner, you know, as part of his business, he saved every bit of correspondence with James. And he was a very dear and personal friend of James Beard's. And John Schaffner himself, though he's married and had children, was a great dad and husband. He had an arrangement with his wife that he was gay or perhaps bisexual and that he had another sort of private life with men. Mm -hmm. And so he and James connected on that level. So those papers afforded me the deepest insights into James's private sexual life and how he sort of spoke about himself being gay in the context of his gay friend. So when he traveled, for instance, he would write his agent kind of observations of food in the place, places where he was traveling, but also about sort of the men and the the sort of gay society in the, in the places where he would go. You know, for instance, Zurich had a, a very robust gay political and social scene. So those were those were incredible. And those were those had been overlooked. I think they were available when the earlier bios were done, but they were overlooked. So let me ask you about James Beard, Richard Olney, and Craig Claiborne, the three people that you named. Do you think that they all chose food for the same sort of outlet that you seem to feel that this represented for James Beard? Do you think that it was more complicated than that? Was what, what brings them all together? Why is it important that you say that they're gay and not just talk about them and their relationship to food in general? Yeah. I think the fact that they were gay and that they couldn't easily reveal that to the public made them mm, approach food, made them use food in a way, in particular ways that were that were similar. And you know, this is not, although I focused on those three gay closeted men in, in my essay and in James Beard in my book, those were not sort of exclusive to gay men. I mean, certainly MFK Fisher, starting in the 1930s, was writing about food in a, in a, in a new way that these three were, were, were part of, this kind of American gourmet movement. I'm reluctant to use the word gourmet because James hated it, James Beard hated it, and also, um, you know, it's become it's sort of come to be this sort of elitist term, but really MFK Fisher was urging Americans in her books in the late thirties and early forties to think about food in the way that say French and Italians and, and Swiss people thought about food, which was to be the sort of center of a life that was built around sensuality and built around pleasure. You know, Americans were not culturally brought up 
generally speaking, to think about food as an indulgence in the way that people from other cultures, pretty much almost any other culture <laughs> you can think of, were sort of brought up to think about food. Americans had sort of shame, guilt, you know, enjoying food too much. And when they went out to restaurants from the 1930s, you know, through the 1970s, they were places that were very, tended to be very intimidating. The sort of casual bistro as we know it today didn't, didn't exist, you know, mm -hmm. you ate cheap, cheap food at a lunch counter or you ate fancy French food out and felt intimidated by it. And so these three figures and James in particular really tried to bring a wider awareness of this or sort of exhort Americans more widely to think about food in, in, in a new way, to think about shopping in a new way, to shop the way people in other cultures do, which is to shop for, shop for flavor, shop for quality. At the time that all three of them were working, the biggest, most Americans would probably look at one of the great national accomplishments as the food system and the gleaming supermarket, you know, where you could get tomatoes and strawberries in January. This was like a miracle, but this is completely antithetical <laughs> to this way of thinking about food, which, you know, is common, commonplace for us now as a source of pleasure to eat food in season and to really use food as a way of expressing identity, expressing joy, expressing the sort of love for people you're cooking for. These were really new, new, new ideas for most Americans in the middle of the 20th century and Beard, Claiborne, and only in different ways really kind of preached, preached this gospel of sensuality in food. And James, I, th I think most democratically of all, especially after the publication of the James Beard cookbook in 1959, which was a Dell paperback that cost 75 cents, you didn't even have to go to a bookshop to buy it. You know, you could buy it at a newsstand or at a drugstore. And, you know, within it, he was sort of telling you that even something like fried ham and eggs or a boiled potato could be exquisite. It could be gourmet food if you did it in the right way and with the right intention. Okay, but I want to go back to the question of these three gay men that you have pointed out and talk about how being gay was essential, perhaps, or not, in the way they, they took food to a different level or whatever. Or, or is it not? Is it just an aside that they were gay? I believe it was central to their work and their identity. In a way, they had, you know, Claiborne perhaps the least of all of them, but in a way they, they, they had a sort of outlaw, <laughs> you know, you could say a sort of outlaw side. I mean, certainly only lived the life of a classical, of a classic American expatriate, you know, of the 1950s. I mean, he went to, he went to France in the 1950s to become a painter, you know, became friends with James Baldwin, other American expats and kind of discovered food and discovered food in a way that was unlike what was being touted as French food in America or American cookbooks at the same time. Of course, Julia Child is absolutely wonderful, but you know, in many ways she is antithetical to Olney's approach to food. And it, 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 it was completely disruptive 
in a way that was like the experience of gays and lesbians in the mid 20th century who sort of had to step outside of conventional society in order to find authentic expression. You know, only did it in France, cooking in a way that you could never do in an American supermarket. You know, you couldn't cook Olney's French food really by shopping in an American supermarket. You had to start to grow things yourself. Um, you know, you had to find farmers who would grow them for you. And of course, you know, he was huge inspiration on Alice Waters, who took this much farther. You know, James's, James's experience, he grew up in Portland, Oregon, with a mother who was probably also uh, queer, was probably a lesbian, certainly had an affair with a woman. And she taught James to use food in certain ways. And one of those ways was as an expression of things that couldn't be expressed otherwise in polite, in polite society. And in James, in James's life, you know, he carved out, you know, starting in around 1940, he carved out a very comfortable existence in Greenwich Village in a sort of enclave of bohemians, but also other gay and lesbian people who found they could have some type of expression in this sort of safe enclave. And James Beard sort of forged this joyful private expression of food with adopted family, you know, that, that, that was so far outside of what was being sold as American food at the time to a mainstream audience, which is that, you know, cooking existed within the family unit. And there were tight rules about, you know, balanced meals and, you know, that women were sort of forced, whether they wanted to or not, to be, you know, producing three squares a day for their family. Gender roles at the time that all three were working were very, very strict. After World War II, gender roles in the United States became, you know, very rigid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very rigid. And so it was difficult for a woman to confess that cooking for her family was drudgery and that she didn't want to do it. I mean, it, it, this was just expected that she would do it. The man would, would, you know, work outside the home and get a paycheck. James's work and food, as well as Claiborne's and Olney's, but James really was addressing this audience of the, the, the sort of quote unquote housewife who had to cook, but he was kind of imbuing this food with this kind of doctrine of pleasure that he knew traveling outside of the United States, which in part he did because it was easier to be gay in a place like, like, like France, Italy, even Spain, um, the consequences of being sort of caught and exposed in those places was much less than being in the United States. So absorbing that lesson of food in places where it was easier to be gay and then kind of bringing it back to American food culture and kind of grafting it onto this kind of Native American food culture was, I think, James's great accomplishment. And I see it in historical context for all th three of those figures, but particularly for James, as you know, specifically the sort of gay message. <laughs> you know, that was that was something that was learned in the same way that you know, MFK Fisher. She sort of shocked a lot of mainstream readers, and I think she delighted in shocking readers in that she she wrote about herself as a as a 
as, as a woman who enjoyed sex in the 1930s and 40s. And it was related to food, you know, enjoying a sexual relation with your partner is akin to being able to enjoy a meal or, you know, not even a meal, just, you know, the perfect tangerine. This was a, in some ways, a revolutionary message for Americans in the 20th century. And it really had to come from people who were outside of the mainstream. So let me ask you if you can talk about any new projects that you're working on. I'm in the process of pitching a new book, but I don't really want to talk about it. But um, but yeah, it has more sort of memoir aspect to it. Um, And what about um, The Man Who who Ate Too Much? Are we ever going to see that in an audio book? Yes. In fact, um, yes, the audio version is slated to come out in late January. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time today, John. This has really been a great conversation. It's a really, really interesting book, and it's really a, a, a good read. I, I just enjoyed actually reading it a lot. Thanks so much for writing it. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.